Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the podcast from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we are celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. We've handpicked some of our favorite and best interviews from the past to help you find your family history. Whether you want to visit the village where your ancestor was born on your next vacation, or you just want to find some of their records, you're going to need to know exactly the place name and the location. Professional genealogist Rich Venezia is here to help us pin down those ancestral places. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This is such an important topic. We've got to know where people came from to be able to track them down. You know, I was just reading your article. It's called Hometown Heroes in the September-October issue of Family Tree Magazine. And in it, you said something really interesting right off the bat, which was you said that near enough isn't good enough. What are you trying to help people understand when you say that? Yeah, so when we start with our research, we're often starting with censuses, especially, right? Those are often kind of the the backbone of a lot of American research. And so if people are moving around a lot, or if you aren't exactly sure where they lived because of the decennial census, you might be able to track them around and say, well, you know, they were living in California, and then you could figure out, well, they were first in Los Angeles, and then they went to San Francisco or whatever. But a lot of other countries, especially Western and Eastern European nations, don't have similar types of these censuses, or at least not that are available to us. And so if we only know, you know, let's say the state where they're from, or the province or region in a different country, it's often really difficult to figure out um, where the records are, because a lot of times the records are going to be held at a really local level. And so unless you know that exact town or village, more often than not, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting any records and and, and moving your research further back in the old country because you really need to pinpoint that exact location. That's a great point. And I, I know sometimes uh, I've seen it where I see a record and it says Warsaw, but they weren't really in Warsaw. They were just really close by. Is that fairly common? Yeah, precisely. My my parents actually, um, I got to tell them, you know, the exact Italian villages where their grandparents were all from because they always th- said Naples, right? Or they heard Naples as part of their family story, but none of them are from Naples. They're all from, you know, 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half outside of Naples. But I think that that happens uh, pretty frequently in the type of research that we're doing. And even today, you know, when you meet people around the world or across the country, they'll probably won't often say the suburb of, you know, New York or Philly or DC where they're from. They usually just say, you know, the city that's close by. So I think that kind of pervades to today. And it's a great way to, uh, you know, remember when you, when you see big cities listed on a death record or something like that, you might need to dig a little further uh, to ascertain whether it was indeed that city or if it's someplace that's close by. Well, in the article, you give 16 sources that we can turn to to try to pin this all down. Uh, let's start with number one, which I think is excellent, which is ship manifests. Ship manifests are a great way to start when we're looking for our ancestors that you know came over voluntarily, that were interested in finding a better life for their family. 
The problem with manifests is that they weren't really used to regulate immigrants because of the laws in the United States until around the late 1800s. And so because of that, there's not always great detail on them. So if you're like me, and you have a lot of 20th century immigrant ancestors, manifests can often give you most all of the information that you need. But if you're researching earlier ancestors, uh, you might very well never find a manifest because there wasn't one created, or the manifest is only going to give you a country of origin as opposed to any place more specific. And so let's say that they they immigrated, you found it, you realize, oh, it doesn't have that specific. Number two, you mentioned naturalization records. I love these. And I just think they're an amazing resource. Tell folks about uh, what these are and, and what they might have for us. Sure. So naturalization records are often kind of the, the next stepping stone when we're researching immigrant ancestors. They relate to the process to become a U.S. citizen, um, which was never a requirement. So you may find them for your immigrant ancestors, but you may not. Again, starting in the 20th century, we see really helpful information on these records. We generally get exact places of birth, place of last residence, which certainly isn't always the same, information on ship of arrival, lots of great details. But because of kind of the lack of regulation of, of these or lack of federalization of these records, the forms weren't standardized prior to the early 1900s. And as such, again, we run into this p- situation where every now and again, you'll find a record from the 1850s that's super helpful and gives an exact place of origin and lots of other great genealogical details. But most pre-1906 naturalization records aren't generally going to give you that exact location of origin that you really need to, to go across the pond. Sounds like we have to do a lot of collecting of all the different ones. You never know which one's going to have it. I, I know for me, from my great-grandparents, that was the only document that mentioned this little village of cotton. You know, everything else was much more generic and kind of yeah. the general area, but that was the one. So you never know. Right. Uh, number three was vital records. Now that makes sense What birth, marriage, and death, right? Right. Of course. So... These are a great way to, again, collect a lot of documentation and see maybe where if you've got 10 or 15 or 20 to order, only one or two of them might have the the precise information that you're looking for. But, you know, if you're researching a family that came over at different times, if you've got, you know, uncles and aunts and cousins, you want to get all of those records because it might only wind up being the last nephew's death record or something that lists the place of origin of his parents, right? And it sounds crazy, but I've seen it before where you gather together all of this documentation. And if there's 30 possible records to get, it's the last one that has what you need. But that makes it really important not to skip out on, right? Not to miss, because it could be the only thing that mentions it, especially sometimes for for earlier immigrants. Brilliant idea, the the whole kind of fan principle that going out and further beyond our ancestors. So the first three we've talked about are definitely from what I think we're we're hearing here is that the more recent, the better, the the more chances we have of finding what we need. Um, Sometimes we're talking further back. And I see that number four is marriage licenses and, and marriage records, which typically somewhat older than some of the other available vital records, correct? 
Yeah. And so, of course, you know, sometimes I, I do very little, I will say I do very little colonial research, but I do know there's often uh, colonial marriage bonds that people might be able to find. Um, but also in a lot of places like in Pennsylvania, where I live, for instance, the marriage licenses in the county start in 1885, but the birth and deaths for the state don't start until 1906. So you do often find that marriage records or marriage licenses might wind up predating some of the vital records. And in some cases, like for New York City, for instance, uh, you often or you may have the opportunity to get two or more different records related to the same event, right? There might have been an application for a marriage license and then a marriage license or a marriage certificate or a marriage return. And a lot of times they're not necessarily filed together. So you might need to go digging around and looking to see if there are other records. For instance, in New York City, they have a, a second uh, set of, of marriage records, they have marriage licenses that people had to fill out prior to getting their marriage, to getting married, right, to getting their marriage certificate. And so between, I think it's 1908 and 1937, there's the secondary document that you definitely have to get because it asks for birthplace, but also asks for parents' birthplace. And that information is not listed on the certificate. So if you just stop at the certificate, you might be missing some great additional information. Hmm. Reading between the lines, I'm really hearing you saying we've got to really, in a sense, research the jurisdiction to know what did they have, what did they create, what kind of records in what process, because that varies a lot by county and by state. In uh, Here in Pennsylvania, we started marriage uh, record keeping in the counties in 1885. And actually, for the first six years, there was a second copy that went to the state so if you happen to have people married in this small time frame, you've got a county record that's at the county, the county record that was sent to the state, which should be identical, but might not be. There's also the potential for the religious record, right? Um, and if in some places they had city marriage returns as well. So there might be a possibility to find three or four or even five different records that all document the same event. But because the records were kept by different people for different reasons, there might be a lot more information on some than on others. We've been leading us through some of the low-hanging fruit, some of the, the tougher fruit to get. So many of them kind of dovetail into each other and you know lead us through a path from one record to the next until we get to the one that has it. These are all terrific ideas, and I really recommend that everybody get the Family Train Magazine. It's September, October 2022 issue. Check out the Hometown Heroes article by Rich Venezia because it is kind of like your checklist to run through. And um, whether it's easy or hard, it's worth it. And it was so worth it to have you here on the show. Thank you so much, Rich, for helping us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and to write for Family Tree Magazine. So I'm, uh, I, I'm glad for the article. And I, I wish you the best of luck in figuring out where your folks were from and maybe eventually getting to go visit as well. Oh, yes, that'd be even better, wouldn't it? <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Is it possible to build family trees using only DNA? Your DNA guide, Diane Southerd, is tackling this question in her new article. It's called Genetic Engineering, and it's in the November-December issue of Family Tree Magazine. And I'm happy to say that she's here with me today on the podcast to talk about it. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, before we talk about some of these new tools that are out there that are going to maybe potentially help us build our family tree using our DNA, give us a quick review of some of the kinds of relationships that we see in our DNA matches and kind of what we need to keep in mind. Right. Yeah. It's so important to have a good foundation before we try to dive into what the future is going to bring to our trees for sure. So it's important to keep in mind that DNA relationships are measured in something we call a centimorgan. So fancy word just means it's like units of measure that we use to to decide what kind of relationship we have with someone else. So I like to say the more you share, the more you care. So the more (laughs) DNA you share with somebody, the the closer your relationship should be, right? Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. So you can have like one number of shared centimorgans. So let's say you share 100 centimorgans with someone. Well, that 100 centimorgans doesn't translate into just one relationship. It can translate into lots of different relationships, And so it's really tricky to just look at the total amount of shared DNA and say, oh, well, that person must be my third cousin or fourth cousin or something, because there are always multiple possibilities for relationships. So it can get kind of tangled. Yeah, I imagine so. And we see new DNA tools coming out quite often, and some of them tout the idea that maybe they can help us detangle some of this. What are some of the new DNA tools coming out? And can they actually help you just take the DNA itself and build out a family tree? Such a good question. And I think this is this is the holy grail of genetic genealogy, right? <laughs> this is what every company wants to offer you is this ability for you to just show up in their platform and for them to spit out a family tree for you. And at least right now, we are short of that goal, though I don't think it is a complete impossibility in the future. But for now, each of our companies are kind of trying to tackle this in their own way. So in the article, I go over different tools that are offered by different companies. But essentially, the tools that are the most successful are those that are bringing in not just genetic information, but also at least some level of genealogy information. So at 23andMe, they don't have any family trees. So the only genealogy information they have is your age. And I think a lot of times we don't think of that as a piece of genealogy, but it really is. It's, it's something else, something outside your DNA that you have to tell the system in order for the system to try to recognize your relationships with other people. So we go from something as simple as just a number, how old you are, to something a lot more complex that's offered at MyHeritage or Ancestry DNA. Both of those companies have very huge, robust family trees as part of their system. And so they're able to pull information from these family trees, combine it with some of this DNA information to kind of provide you a a hybrid tool experience. Interesting. So it sounds like we may not have to have our own tree built, but perhaps as long as somebody else has a tree built and they have DNA matching with us, then we can kind of work off of that. Although I imagine many people listening certainly have a, a good deal of their tree already built. Right, right. No, you've got the idea though, that ultimately if enough people in your genetic family, so people that you share DNA with, if enough of those people have a tree built then the system can use the trees that are built to suggest or hint to you about your ancestral relationships. So it it is a a really powerful community-fueled effort, and it does 
honestly come down to how many people in your genetic family have taken a DNA test. And that definitely influences the outcome of these tools, which can give you pretty interesting hints about the ancestors you may find in your tree. Very cool. So as we go through your article, tell folks, what are they going to learn? I, I see that you've got it br- uh, broken down kind of by company. Uh, you've got a great chart here on estimating relationships. What kinds of things will they be able to to do using your article? Well, so yeah, so we'll dive into each testing company. So 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, MyHeritage DNA, as well as Family Tree DNA. And I'll talk you through kind of where they're at in this progression of helping you build this genetic family tree kind of with minimal input on your part. And so, yeah, definitely you want to investigate each one of those tools. But probably what your listeners will be most interested in is getting all the way to the very end of the article where I talk about what I feel like we can expect in the future. Because I think that's one of the top questions I get asked no matter where I go. Where is this headed, Diane? How are we going to manage this in the future? And really one of the biggest questions is, do I even need to figure this out right now? Because, well, if it's just going to get better or easier in the future, should I put forth the effort today, right? Mm -hmm. So the answer, I guess, is I have no idea because I can't predict the future, unfortunately. But I can see that there are some technologies being developed um, that could expedite this process that we have of trying to take our DNA information to help it at least kickstart, if not kind of fully build at least a small family tree for ourselves. And there's technology out there. Um, 23andMe is is building kind of an automatic family tree. Again, just, just based on your DNA and that age, that one little tiny piece of genealogy information, they're able to build a tree. And we should not minimize that. Even though the tree isn't always completely correct, it is still fascinating and amazing that they can really just build a tree based on DNA relationships and ages. But that's not quite enough, right? Because as so many people know, the age is not a good indication of relationship. If you're the youngest son of the youngest son of the youngest son, and you meet someone who's the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son, you could be very different ages and yet the same generation. And so age is not always really helpful. And so what Ancestry has started to build is a new kind of technology they call side view. And in the article, I go over what that side view technology is and its potential. But essentially, I think it has the potential to, on a large scale, reconstruct the DNA of our ancestors. Oh, this is kind of sounding all kinds of sci-fi now, but really what it is, is the ability to kind of reach back in time and reassemble these pieces of DNA that have been passed down to descendants of an ancestor and use them to recreate the DNA of that ancestor. And that will allow us to do better genealogy back farther. So right now, when you're doing this genetic genealogy, you have this kind of hard stop at like your three times great grandparents. We really have a very, very hard time using DNA to get past that generation. But Mm -hmm. so many of us want to know our four times greats or our five times greats. And it's just out of reach right now with autosomal DNA. But I think this technology will bring that generation within reach. And that is really exciting. 
That sounds interesting. And I don't know anything about it, but I know when I watch, you know, shows and they're doing uh, crime, they talk about how you can take a little tiny, tiny smidgen of DNA and you can amplify it through a process to get enough to then be able to test. Is, is that going down the same kind of path? The idea of isolating, here's the third grade, and then amplifying them to somehow then be able to take you another three, four, five generations back. That is that kind of the direction you're talking I think you're thinking about it the right way. Um, the technology is really based on on your genetic relatives. So again, the more people in your family that you have tested, the better able the system is to recreate the DNA of your ancestors. Mm -hmm. Because it's all about understanding that if this person is my second cousin and this other person is also my second cousin and the second cousin to this first person, then all of us share this ancestor and our DNA shared is this. And then we bring in a fifth person and a 10th person and a 20th person. And by crowdsourcing all of that, and the system can see that all of us are descendants of this one person, that helps the system then reconstruct the DNA of that person based on the 10 or 20 or 40 of us. So the more volume you have, the easier it's going to be. So for people like me who have very small families, um, you know, my mom is an only child. My dad is one of two. His dad was one of three. His dad was one. You know, like we have a pretty small family. It's going to be harder for my family to reconstruct the DNA of that ancestor because they just don't have very many descendants. So for those of you who have ancestors, like on my mom's mom's side, it's like there's 10 kids who had 13 kids who had 10. I mean, we are going to have no problem reconstructing the DNA of that ancestor. So a lot of it's going to be a bit unfair (laughs) based on like just the descendants that a person has, but certainly the more descendants they have, the easier it's going to be for us to figure out their genetic profile. And that's when the power really unlocks because then instead of testing you, you've tested them, which just puts everything in in a closer range. Yeah. It's interesting. When I compare, I think about that in my mind as a parallel to genealogy, the more records you have, the more you can build things out. And you mentioned something earlier in your statement, you said something about it, automating. And I I see that more and more just in genealogy in general, just the whole process is being essentially automated. I mean, somebody who's new to genealogy comes to a an ancestry or my heritage, and they just start getting those hints. And pretty soon, it seems like it's rolling all by itself. Is that kind of where you see the direction of the DNA going as well? Definitely. And I see what you mean as well. I mean, even with the the latest census, right? Even the automatic yes. indexing. and I mean, that was incredible. Incredible, right? And it, it's the same idea. It's the same idea where before there were just so few people who had DNA tested, it took you so much longer and such a, a longer process to even be able to hope to identify someone. But you can see even now, like as you take a DNA test, there's so many more people in these databases. It's so much easier to find a closer connection, which just makes that that process so much faster. And that's really where we're headed. And it's really about volume. And it's about technology that's connecting all of these, what used to be individual kind of just jointed pieces all together for us. Yeah. Well, a bit of a double-edged sword. We, we all like the the puzzle solving, don't we? You know, and, and having the hands-on, which I think there'll always be room for hands-on to make sure that all this automation is being done right. <laughs> yeah, that is one thing that I say also in the article is that 
um, don't sit on your sit on your heels and wait for the technology to answer all your questions. It never will. Right. It never will. And I think the the bigger push for me is that because we've already come so far, the answer to this question that you have could already be found. You just don't know where to look or you haven't looked or you haven't taken the time to understand the process of using your DNA and your family history. And if you did, you'd find your ancestor. I mean, this is happening all the time to my students, right? Because I teach courses and, you know, people have kind of dabbled a little bit. And then when they finally say, I'm fine, fine, I'm going to learn this stuff. I'm going to dive in. They do. And they find who they're looking for. That's the, the beauty of it is that your answer could already be there right now. And you're just sitting around waiting for someone to tell it to you when you could actually go find it. So, And that's the fun of it. And they can find you at yourdnaguide.com. Is that right? That's right. Awesome. Well, and they are going to find lots of interesting ideas and tools to be using in this genetic engineering article in the November, December issue of Family Tree Magazine. Diane Souther, thank you so much. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And good luck, everybody out there. It's time to learn. Don't wait. The next generation of family history is here. Storied is taking family history to new and exciting places with AI, storied books, and more. With billions of historical records and exclusive newspaper publications, you can build and expand your family tree with ease. Collaborating with your family has never been easier or more affordable. Don't let your family's legacy go untold. Preserve these memories in a beautiful interactive format that will be cherished for generations. Turn your family's journey into a stunning storied book, a keepsake to pass down to your children and grandchildren. Visit Storied today and get started for free. That's storied, S-T-O-R-I-E-D dot com. Whether you've inherited a shoebox of old snapshots or an entire house filled with a lifetime of memories, becoming your family's caretaker of the past is a weighty responsibility. And it's also a joy for those of us who understand the the physical connection to our ancestors through these old items. Well, here to give us a few kind of general tips on taming and caring for your entire family heirloom collection is the family curator and author of the book, How to Archive Family Keepsakes, Denise May Levenick. Welcome back to the show, Denise. Hi, Lisa. It's nice to talk with you again. Well, this is a definitely a topic on all of our minds at some point because, you know, hopefully we might inherit a few things or had some things handed down to us. What are some of the most common types of heirlooms that really should be getting our care and attention? Well, there are so many, but we especially get a lot of questions about um, things that people inherit and accumulate in their own life. Bibles, books and magazines, china, crystal and glass. And then there's furniture, jewelry, letters, linens, even military uniforms and musical instruments. And of course, newspaper clippings, photos and photo albums. And you're lucky if you inherited a quilt and some recipe cards. Uh, People ask about silverware, sports memorabilia, timepieces like clocks and watches, and even wedding dresses. 
Well, wedding dresses on my radar. Uh, <laughs> my daughter just got married, and and she has a wedding dress that she would love to hand down. And in fact, I have one that I also inherited. Um, let's start there. What can we do to be careful and preserve wedding dresses? Well. Wedding dresses are textiles, fabric mostly, although some have uh, beautiful beading that we do have to be extra careful of. You'll want to, first of all, wear white cotton gloves whenever you're working with a textile, especially a white wedding dress. Um, Many dry cleaners are um, very familiar and um, comfortable uh, dry cleaning a recently worn wedding dress and you definitely should store it clean. So you'll want to take your daughter's dress to the dry cleaners and tell them you're going to be um, preserving it. They often have um, a bag, a Tyvek kind of a bag. It's um, that sort of new material. It's very lightweight and they can put the, the dress in there to protect it from dust and light. Before you even take it to the dry cleaners, though, inspect it for damage um, in case, you know, any food or a wine spilled on anything. And you'll want to point that out to the cleaners so they can take care of that and make any repairs. Um, you'll need to tell them if you want to hang it or if you want it to be preserved flat in a box. Um, if, if it's to be hung, you can use a special padded hanger that will fill out the sleeves and then they'll stuff the, stuff the sleeves with um, acid-free tissue paper and the bodice to keep some shape in there. Now your dress that you might want to preserve, an older dress, um, you could do the same thing um, by stuffing the sleeves and the bodice with acid-free tissue and either fold it and put it in an acid-free box, really big one, or hang it on a padded hanger. That's a great idea. Uh, in fact, uh, at the end of the wedding, I noticed that a little button had cover had come off and things like that. So I like that attention to detail that we inspect however old the dress is and um, make notes of things we might want to get repaired and things because once it's tucked away, it might be not, not be looked at for some time. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking also about other types of textiles. I know um, we have... My husband's father's military uniform, many people have inherited military uniforms. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about in terms of that type of textile? Well, a military uniform, of course, um, is also going to be fabric. But, you know, we often have, um, sometimes the medals are left on, any kind of insignia. Um, Patches, I think if they're sewn and they're fabric, you're going to want to leave them on. But if it's um, any kind of uh, pins or even buttons, some people take the buttons off of uniforms. But if you want to leave them, you might want to um, cover them with acid-free tissue to prevent tarnish um, from the air. Um, You're going to want to protect it from sunlight, moisture, and insects. And I would not suggest taking an older uniform to a dry cleaner unless they are experienced in preserving um, vintage clothing. Live, my grandfather's World War I uniform. And um, it's, it's still in pretty good shape. I, you can give it a light vacuuming with the, a hose vacuum, 
put an old nylon. Do any of us have old nylons? <laughs> put it over the nozzle <laughs> of the vacuum and um, gently try to get any dust off of the fabric. Um, I don't know. I think the um, the boxes are better for uniforms because they are so heavy to hang on a hanger. And they also will keep the light out. So, again, acid-free tissue in the legs of pants or uh, jodhpurs. In my grandfather's case, they were um, short pants mm-hmm. and jacket sleeves. And that, you know, that that's a, you just really have to keep it um, in a place that is temperature controlled. You don't want it to be too wet where it will get humid or too hot or cold. So please don't put it in your attic. Big box like that. It's good to store it on a, a closet shelf, maybe an unused closet where it will be in the dark and protected. Great. Okay, so that whole atmosphere of where the storage happens is is really important. Um, and you know, you mentioned something very different from material, which would be things like books and magazines. And a lot of us will have something of some type that we've gotten over the years. Uh, well, how should we deal with those? Well, I, I, I mentioned that because people have asked me recently, I've had a lot of questions about how to store books. I think it's because we've, we've gone through our books and so many of us are reading ebooks now that we don't accumulate as many and what we yeah. keep we really want to preserve you know it's books are designed to be stored on a shelf so that's a really good way to think about preserving them the problem is that if they're in um, a room full of light or dust they can just become faded the spines can become faded So if you have old, old books, um, particularly like a family Bible or family photo albums, you might want to consider purchasing archival book boxes. And the books can still be, they can be placed in the book box and stored upright, again, on a closet shelf, where they're in a kind of controlled um, environment. The temperature isn't going to change much in your home. If you have books kind of out where you can see them, be very careful when you take them off the shelf um, not to grasp them by the spine so that it would rip, the fabric might rip. Of course, they can be vacuumed. That's a good way to keep them clean. And, oh, please don't put scotch tape on them if they tear, you know. (laughs) <laughs> right. We've, we've all got a few of those with some torn jackets or covers, and they get um, hastily repaired. But leave the, the, the re- book repair to the professionals. Or get, um, they make book repair tape you can use. Oh, be careful of pests. They really do like books, silverfish particularly. So it's a good reason to keep the, them clean, to vacuum and clean your space. I love old books, don't you? Oh, totally. And, you know, I love that idea of the vacuum with the the little nylon over it for all of these types of items or anything that has to be really gently cleaned. Because sometimes it is just that fine layer of dust that we're dealing with that we want to remove before we really tuck them away. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, these are all terrific ideas. And uh, as you heard Denise mention at the top of this segment, there are so many different kinds of things that uh, you may have. And maybe as she listed them, you start to kind of think about them around your house. Well, we've got a terrific page for you over at FamilyTreeMagazine.com where you can read her article. And it's called Family Heirlooms. How to Care for the Most Common Types. And it is just laid out wonderfully where you can click on each type of item, read through uh, Denise's recommendations and suggestions, and uh, start taking care of those items today. And of course, if you want to stay in touch with Denise or find out more about what she's up to, do visit her over at her website. It's at thefamilycurator.com, thefamilycurator.com. Com. Thanks again, Denise. Always great ideas. Thanks so much. It's nice to talk with you again. And congratulations again on the wedding in your family. New leaf on your family tree. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. This is the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'll have links to everything we've talked about today on the show over at the show notes page. You can find our show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And there you'll find a huge back catalog of past episodes full of topics that will help you in your genealogy research. When you stop by the website, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter. That's the perfect way to stay in touch with Family Tree Magazine and get all the latest and greatest news. Plus, the announcements of each and every new podcast episode. I am Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll come by and visit my website at genealogygems.com. There you will find the Genealogy Gems podcast and a link over to our Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>